is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Well, welcome once again, everybody, to the Enter Sad Men podcast. If it rocks, we roll. Uh, this evening, we are going to be talking about three um, brilliant albums that were never as big as they should have been. And we'll be talking about why that might have been and encouraging you all to go out and buy them or listen to them immediately. Joined, as usual, by Richard and Steve for the episode number 32 in our journey down rock and roll's memory lane. Um, that means, I think, if my maths is right, that we're doing album numbers 94, 95 and 96. So we're close to completing the first 100 on the fabled Hall of Fame. Gents, how's your week been? Steve, um, you enjoyed your listening? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. Three very good albums. And I'm certainly asking the question about two of them. Yeah, why didn't they make it? You know, that was the premise, and I'm still asking the question. And Richard, how have you gone? Yeah, likewise. I think for all three of them, why did they not make more traction, you know, get more, I don't know, applause? Because they certainly deserved it. And yeah, really enjoyed the three again. So, really good choices, gents. Good. Well, episode 32, we have called Shot Down in Flames. Um, we do try to make it relevant to something to do with hard rock and heavy metal every week. So, Shot Down in Flames, albums that should have been bigger than they were but weren't. So, before we have a listen to some of what we've been listening to the last, for the last week, do you want to tell everyone, should we tell everybody what we've been listening to, what you all chose? So, Steve, let's start with you. You came up as your kind of hidden gem was? It was Fastway's third album, Waiting for the Raw. I, I don't know how many people will remember the uh, fast Eddie Clark, Pete Way masterclass that was Fastway, but they probably don't remember much about them at all, which is um, which is why I chose them. And they're missing out on a, on a, on a little gem. Well, they, they certainly won't remember Pete Way in the band, that's for damn sure. Uh, but we'll come on to that. Richard, who did you choose? Yeah, so I've gone for a British group called Grand Prix and uh, their second album from 1982 called There for None to See. And I went for an album that was released in 1989, which um, unusually puts me at the end of the queue for this evening's debate. Normally I'm right at the front because I've got my feet firmly in the 1970s, but I've gone for Vane's, well, it's not really their debut album because their debut album was a self-released album that I've made it only onto cassette and was self-released by the band. It's their first studio album with a proper label, No Respect. Let's uh, have a quick listen through to a few tracks um, from the clutch that we've been talking about and listening to over the last seven days. Then we'll go and dig through them and put the bonnet up and have a route around the engine. Trying to give away 
there you go. Nine tracks from the 32 that have been occupying our time over the last seven days. We do this in chronological order always. So the album that was released first through to the album that was released last, which means, Richard, we start with you. Explain why you've chosen Grand Prix. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, so, I mean, Grand Prix, it's commented that they're, they were part of the new wave of British heavy metal. So they emerged in uh, around 1980. They had a debut album, uh, and then their second album was this one, Their Fantasy, in, uh, in 1982. They went on to make a third Samurai in 83, and uh, then slowly started to uh, to split up uh, with the you know, Robin McCauley, the singer, ending up in uh, the McCauley Schenker Group, which is probably the nearest a lot of people might have got to uh, Grand Prix as a unit. I bought this album shortly after it was released. A friend of mine had bought it. I don't know how they got hold of it. Um, I, don't, I don't remember it receiving any real airplay, uh, uh, but they played it to me. I thought it was great, and I, I went out and bought it as soon as I could, and it's remained to this day one of my favourites. Uh, so released sometime in 1982 on the RCA label. It's uh, a shade over 40 minutes in length, uh, produced by Greg Walsh. Uh, not sure where it was recorded. If anybody knows, then do send us in any information through our uh, website. In terms of who was Grand Prix at this time, uh, Robin McCauley was on vocals, Phil Lanzan on keyboards, Michael O'Donoghue on guitars, Andy Burney on drums, and Ralph Hood on bass. Uh, no chart information. Uh, I don't think it really did much. Uh, it did have one single, Keep On Believing, to, uh, that reached the heady heights of uh, number 75 in the British singles chart for a week before dropping <laughs> without a trace. Uh, in terms of track listing, 10 tracks. Uh, side one is Heaven to Hell, Troubadour, Take a Chance, Paradise and Keep On Believing. And then side two uh, is Taking Your Life Away, Runaway, Tough of the Track. Atlantis and Relay. So I I adore this album, always have, and never understood why it wasn't massive. But I'd be interested in your first impressions before we go on to the detail. Well, this has been the challenge of the three albums this week, Richard, and not because I don't like it. It's just it's the one I know least, but I don't know at all. I didn't know at all before um, before we got tucked into episode thirty-two. So it's been a really really interesting listen. As soon as I heard the first few bars of the opening song, which is called Heaven to Hell, I can see immediately why you liked it. I can absolutely see immediately why you liked it. It was like this fusion of yes and rush. And I thought, yeah, this is right up his alley. I love most things that have got a trace of prog. And I like all that. And I like the combination of that with that kind of 80s, I don't know, almost sort of new romantic feel that's running through this and all enveloped in an air of kind of, AOR pomp and grandeur. And it's um so the ingredients are there for a really great album and a really massive career. I don't think we got either the great album and we certainly didn't get the great mm. massive career. We got a really good album. Um I just feel there's so much nice stuff on there that hints at so much potential. Wasn't real the building block for there just wasn't realized. And hopefully you will at some point enlighten us as to you know, where they vanished to, because for whatever reason, it didn't happen. I've really enjoyed listening to this album. It's taken a few listens to grow on me, and I can see, absolutely see why you like it. 
I'm not even going to begin to try and understand why they didn't make it because I've been asking myself the same question about Fastway and The Vein and countless other bands I could have chosen, like Coney Hatch and several others that are on my shortlist, Malice. Um, so I'm not even going to begin to understand why. Who can possibly explain what, what flaws in management and, and record company deals and God knows what else? But it's been fun. There you go. In short, it's been a fun listen, and I've enjoyed most of it. <laughs> so a bit like a bit like Steve, uh, I sent you, I sent you both, yeah. uh, I knew Richard, a, a, a WhatsApp earlier in the week going, this is so you. Um, because, can I just say 13 things very quickly, okay? Marseille, Asia, 90125 era, yes, Rush, Def Leppard, Q5, Lionheart, Journey, Bob Seger, Heavy Petting, Queen, Joe Lynn Turner era, Rainbow, and the kids from Fame. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that, in one album, are all the references that I got, which, which and, and let's not make any mistake here, Grand Prix predate a lot of them. So this is not them copying. This is actually, if anything, it's the other way around. Um, like Steve, I, my only brush with Grand Prix was courtesy of you about 20, 25 years ago when you played me Samurai, yeah, um, which I loved. So the question, the biggest question that I have, because I have, like Steve, I've struggled with it this week. And then yesterday, finally, I gave myself over to, I'm now back in 1982, and this arrives on my turntable, what do I think in 1982, rather than what do I think in 2021, looking back at 1982. And finally, I got it. But my big question is, why did you choose this rather than Samurai, which was the album that you felt I might connect with better 25 years ago. Because of the two, I prefer this one. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, um, and I, I think Samurai was a second attempt at hitting the big time. Um, and, you know, it will appear on the uh, podcast at some point. Yeah, I, I, I just thought in terms of my, my and, and like Steve, I don't know why. I, I don't. I mean, this is 1982, and and, and there is yeah, there are enough ingredients on this. I it's this album. I I don't understand why they weren't catapulted. Samurai was a second bite, and that didn't really happen for them either. But this is the album I thought would have broken them. So uh, yeah, there for none to see kicks off uh, side one track one with uh, heaven to hell. And I guess it's a bit calling cardy in the one thing about Grand Prix are the layers and the combinations of instruments. Um, so drums and guitar starting, other things, bass coming in, um, lots of melody. I mean, for me, it's a solid start, but it's just a solid start. It's um, There are other tracks on the album that are a hell of a lot stronger. It was enough to make me perk up my ears, I remember, when I first heard this album. I'm not surprised. Not, not surprised. It's one of my favourites. I like this a lot. I do think it's a song that's slightly flatters to deceive. And it get, there's points in the middle. God, like all their tracks, it's quite proggy with that kind of top of the pops chorus. You can tell it's me on that level alone, um, and I'm and I'm quite happy. You know, the intro in the first verse promises to smash into something really big and beefy, but it never actually does. You know what I mean? There are several points in here where you're thinking, right, I'm ready to get my head down, and you can almost hear it. 
and they just don't and it just kind of it just it just doesn't happen you know and um you think there's a really good rock song strong solid powerful rock song hiding away in there some but a very satisfactory opener uh, it's not the only track where that happens either where you you expect it to go in a particular direction and it just it either stops short or it goes off somewhere else where you weren't expecting it but yeah i think I question why they opened the album with this mm-hmm. because I think there were strongest songs to open it. But I, I think it's a perfectly decent song. Um, you know, this this is where I kind of got the the Marseille and nine oh one two five era yes reference from because it's an Asia. I, I think you know if we're going to start with all of these albums, kind of checking off some of the reasons why they didn't make it as they should have done. Then for this one, I think. Tell us, Richard, you know more about this stuff, certainly way more about it than, than I do, or probably, you know, I'm sure Steve does. But the production, I played it today through, I went out and treated myself to a, a Sonos um, mobile, you know, portable, big portable thing. And the sound is much better than anything else I've got in the house at the moment. But the production just feels a bit thin, it, mm-hmm. you know, literally a bit tinny. But is that because I'm listening to it on a shit piece of kit, or is it actually that the production's a bit tinny? No, the production is a bit. It is a bit tinny, and it's even more tinny on the digital than it is on the vinyl. Whatever happened in the mix to digital didn't do it any favors. Right. Well, well let's talk about track two, uh, Troubadour. And for me, we really get going here. Macaulay's voice really presents itself well. The harmonies come in. This is for me where you're getting a bit of Queen, aren't you? I think Bernie's drums. Uh, I think he's a fantastic drummer. Uh, I think, in fact, I mean, one other reason I love this band is all the musicians are very, very gifted uh, in terms of their instruments and how they play with each other. Um, I mean, Troubadour, a bit more poppy. I mean, I don't know what what you've got on your list of references for this one, Mark. I've written down here, Prog Meets Musical Theatre. Uh, and I didn't mean that in a derogatory way. Uh-huh. I love it. You know, back in the early 80s, I was I was glued to the kids from fame. So, you know, don't worry about that. There's nothing wrong with that. But, yeah, it, it it's the sort of thing that you could I could hear in a West End show. Um, you know, there's, there's almost always also a bit of, um, bit of Starlight Express in it. It's, it's a really odd, eclectic mix of... Styles, which yeah. ultimately, surely, is the essence of prog rock, and um, some of it works, some of it doesn't. And this, I quite like this. I quite like it. It's okay. I've got the Partridge Family in here as well. That was my uh, that was my addition to it. <laughs> those choral, those, those seventies choral harmonies. When when you're being proggy, I mean the the, the greatest prog bands will, will just let it go and let it breathe. But when I think Grand Prix are in that sort of difficult position where they know the kind of music they like to play, and it is and it is complex and layered. You make that point very well. And they're trying to compress it into, you know, saleable radio single length. And a lot of this stuff doesn't merit that. It should be it should be allowed to breathe and drag on and go on. Because I think there's some long songs in here. They're all shortened. There's not, not often we say that song should be longer. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> no. We, I mean, move on to track three, you know, side one, take a chance, which is the sort of the heaviest track of this side. I mean, a lot of really good synchronization between the instruments. Um, you know, guitar keyboards playing really well together. You know, big drum beat going right the way through. 
this lovely dual riff uh, from both uh, Michael Donoghue and, and Phil Lanzon. I think Michael Donoghue rescues some of this album. There are moments where it wanders off in a particular direction and you think, where the hell are you going? And then you get an O'Donoghue solo and you know, suddenly it all comes back. So, yeah, I, um, I think my issue with this is, not this particular track, but the track order is there are two tracks, at least on side two, that would have been better off on side one and for me. Um, but, yeah, this is, a, this is a decent track. It's a decent track. But I do think O'Donoghue saves it a little bit. I think he, he lifts it. I like Take a Chance a lot. I think it's gone in a direction I didn't anticipate. There's almost an element, there's almost like a disco bass line dancing through it, isn't there? And it's almost mm-hmm. funk metal before funk metal had been invented. I think it's, it's like Shalimar doing, doing hard rock. I think it's fantastic. Really like it. I love the chorus. It's, it's ever to sing along, um, which a lot of their stuff is. Maybe it's the heaviness I like a bit more. Yeah, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Let's move on to track four. Uh, side one, which is uh, Paradise. I think there's a theme certainly across two of uh, tonight's albums, uh, which is, ah, yes, it's a track for side one. Let's have a slower one. Fairly standard 80s ballad start, nice drums, very 80s keyboard to it. One weird thing I've never been able to work out is the person singing the first verse doesn't sound like Robin McCauley because then you get a little break after the first verse and the second verse starts and then it's Robin. <laughs> Whether Robin had a, Robin McCauley had a cold when he sang the first verse, but um, it's always been one of these things all the time since I've had this album. <laughs> I haven't clocked that at all. You know where McCauley goes kind of gritty at the edge of his vocal, mm. you know, that is evident in the first. I know what you mean, but it is evidence in the first verse. Mm. I think it, it is him. Very different, yeah. Anyway, so I mean, after the fairly gentle start, it then really, really builds. I love this track. It then really, really gets going. Uh, I love the arrangement, and I guess in line with the the title of, of the track, this just builds and builds and builds. Um, it's got a superb ending, and love it to death. Yeah, I like it. I do like it. I, th- I was unconvinced by the I don't like Monday's Boomtown Rats piano opening, but I got past that. And um, I actually, I-, I don't mind listening to Robin McCauley sing anything because um, I just think he's got, he's got a really, really good voice, good rock voice. He sings, he can sing any strain of rock as far as I'm concerned. I was interested about the story that um, I didn't know any of this, that he got slagged off for turning down the singing gig offered to him by the Michael Schenker group originally. I didn't know that when they took Graham Bonnet on first. Um, I didn't know any of that. And that the Cozy Powell and, and Michael Schenker had been to a Grand Prix gig in London and they offered him the job a couple of days later. This was way back in 81 or something. And he turned them down. They got Graham Bonnet instead. But, of course, he reunited with them, presumably, further on in the decade, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So it was obviously um, a, a big ticket in the, uh, in the singing game. Yeah, I think I, I, I love a track like Paradise when you can see you know, almost, I was going to say two sides of his singing, but it's three sides, according to you. <laughs> it's all right. I'm not I'm not as taken with it as you two, obviously, are. It's, it's okay. I find it a bit, um, I think it's, it's more about me than it is about song. I just find it a little bit limp. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 I do, yeah. Limp. 
it's it's the vocals. The vocals I just find them a bit limp. I don't dislike the song particularly, but it's not my favourite. That's not me. You know, it's all right. This side just keeps getting better and better, and it ends with a bit of a belter. I mean, this yeah, it's, I'm fascinated that you don't get this. You two. I mean, this is keep on believing. Uh, yeah, track five. This has got elements of Queensryche before Queensryche. You add another one to your list, Mark. So it uh, starts, again, with uh, some superb drum, just r- really atmospheric drums with uh, keyboards behind, and then really kicks off into an absolutely cracking riff. Uh, and it's, I mean, it remains one of my favourite songs by any band. What are your views? <laughs> <laughs> Right, Mark, can you go first? <laughs> um, I think this is an absolutely fucking wonderful song that's spoiled by the guitars. I love this. I love the verses. I absolutely adore the verses. I think it's so atmospheric, so beautifully delivered. Everything is absolutely on point. Nothing is too far up in the mix. Nothing is too far down. It's beautifully balanced. And then we just get this mad guitar moment, and I just think... You don't need it. I don't know. I love, I absolutely love the, the verse. And, you know, I, I had to mark this in two parts. So the, 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 the actual vast majority of the song scores an absolutely stratospheric score. But the, the, that riff, I, I, I can do without that. I can listen to him just gently taking this off down a calm sea of loveliness. And I would have been perfectly happy. Richard, just keep it together, my friend. You've been listening to this for a lot longer than we have, all right? So we know you we know you love it. We know you love it. I like it. I'm not gonna say I love it in the same way that it doesn't mean the same to me as it does to you, clearly. I do I like that lovely kind of slightly mournful intro. And and again, his voice, his voice is beautiful when he's singing that stuff. The choral work is brilliant, it's a great sing-along. But I'm with Mark. I think some of those guitar licks, and there's another band to add to you, that, that just reminded me of Magnum almost just dropped in, you know, and um, where you didn't quite see him coming. There was no obvious segue. I like the track. It could have scored higher. It definitely could have scored higher. But that, that's what that's what I'm finding with this whole album. It's um, when you least expect it, it meanders somewhere. I didn't see that going. And I get the musicianship all the way through. But um, there's something about the song arrangements eating into my head. <laughs> um, uh, well, you're, you're hearing stuff I I'm not. I love Samurai. For my ears, that's a better album than this one. I I, I like it. You know, I don't I, I don't dislike the album at all. Not on any level. Um, and it will it will do very well when you know we come to score at the end of the show. I think I'm I'm with Steve. There's stuff throughout the album where you're listening and then something arrives, yeah, unannounced and unexpectedly, and you just think. Well, I was having such a really good time with that, and now you've kind of broken into it, and and my and my view of it has changed a bit. And and why couldn't you just carry on doing what you were doing? But yeah, you know. this is fascinating. Okay, right. Well, we better flip the record over. And uh, side two starts uh, with track six, which is taking your life away. When I heard the album from my from my friend, I, th- I think he. I think he might have played this side first. And I, I always felt that actually this would have been a better opener. So, yeah, good solid start side two. Good chugging riff. 
probably, I don't know, is it, is it arrangement-wise, writing-wise, probably the, one of the more standard sort of traditional uh, songs, you know, that, that doesn't surprise you with uh, going somewhere. So I imagine uh, Mark and Steve might prefer it. So, yeah, what do you think, guys? I love it. I absolutely love it. I love the fact that it's simple because that's what I am. <laughs> no, it's, um, yeah, this is a good, I agree with you. This would have made a cracking album opener, definitely. And, yeah, it's a very nice sing-along, as so many of these things are. Corey, they get it right. The melody is good. Um, and, it, and, and they see and they, they see it through to the finish pretty much um, rather than wandering off. Chaz and Dave Piano, I'll forgive them that. That's all right. That's fine. Yeah, pub piano. <laughs> um, this is by far and away for me the best side of the album. I think this side absolutely cooks. Really good. And this is a great opening to side two. It's it's catchy. It's and as Steve says, it's simple, which for simple men is a good thing. <laughs> um because what you know, the the reality here, of course, is that I don't have your ears. I don't have that. I've been spent too long listening to Motorhead. It's you know, I don't I don't necessarily I'm not necessarily able to to kind of differentiate between all the stuff that's going on. So I like simple stuff, and this is nice and simple, which you know that might sound like a sort of a vague insult. That's not how it's intended. It's it does exactly what it starts out doing and it carries on doing that, and that makes me happy. Okay, so uh, let's move on to track two of uh, side two which is Runaway. Well, I mean, once the piano intro starts and we get into the verse, anyone that's complaining they can't hear the bass is obviously deaf. Yeah. Because, again, I think what I love about this album is the the instruments in sort of twos and threes. So this album's never crowded. You've just got a lovely bass, drums, chug with some very light guitar in the verses. And then it builds into another lovely uh, harmony chorus, another really nice melodic, enjoyable song. I really like this. It's um, I think Q Five have nicked some of this for their song of the same title, actually that we listened to a few few episodes ago. Um, and I like that, and I like this. I think um, it's nice, atmospheric. I, th- I, I do think again, though, I do think Michael O'Donoghue's guitar lifts it as well so yeah it's i think this is is good it feels like it's taken a step down in pace from the opener which mm-hmm. is fine um because it certainly makes up for that later on yeah no i like it I, you go back to the point about the baseline yeah it's very prevalent here certainly i mean the, the beef if there was beef missing it's certainly not on this one yeah i like this a lot i think it's a good song okay runaway is followed uh track three of side two by tough of the track um I'm not sure there are many other songs written about uh, middle distance, long distance runners. <laughs> but uh, this is a song about out on your own running and chasing, I guess, Olympic or some other glory. And it's quite famous for uh, a recording of Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile uh, in uh, one part of the song. Starts off again, very atmospheric. I guess trying to give the impression of a, a runner out on their own and then slowly you know, builds lots of light and shade in it. And despite the subject matter, for me, it's the track of the album. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I don't 
I personally don't think it's quite the, the track of the album, but it's certainly close to it, isn't it? It's um, I've written here beautifully atmospheric, some Queen overtones. Um, I don't think you can fail to be kind of caught up, swept up by by this, and and I think that the subject matter helps that. Uh, yeah, because we all feel slightly gooey and and nostalgic and and warm about Roger Bannister and Four Minute Mile. So, um, well, those of a certain age do. Um, so, yeah, I, I think this is a really, really good. Like I say, this uh, this side of the album is really, really good. It's Roger Roger Bannister, not Roger Blackman. Fuck's sake, you're only fifty five. <laughs> yes, but I was only ten. I was. You know, it was only ten years ago when I was born that he did it. Yeah, that's quite a long time ago. <laughs> it is, yeah, but it's still quite fresh, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree with you both in as much as I don't think it's the best track off the album, but I do think it's very nice. I like it's those touches. You were talking about light and shade, Rich, and those little key changes at the start and the little, just just some little touches that just, you've got to listen to it to hear them, to appreciate it. I'm getting a bit of early Queen. There's an early Queen lick in there. And um, oh, there's all sorts of things. It's um, it's a really interesting track. This is the sort of track, incidentally, that wouldn't have been harmed by being 10 minutes long. And that's one of the long ones on the album, anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's obviously, yeah, it's the longest on the album. I just enjoy the way in the second half, in the second half of the song, along with the commentary, that the, the whole thing just starts to build and build and build again. I mean, there's... There's um, elements of this kind of, you know, bass drum playoff in Queensryche albums. I mean, so what I really think this band were ahead of its time. Yeah, but if you're going to put commentary on something, let us hear the fucking commentary. Hmm. <laughs> it took me ages to work out what the commentary was. Yeah, yeah. You know, just, just, just lift it up so we can all hear it. You know, you can still put your widdly keyboards and stuff behind it. It still works. <laughs> Yeah, or, or, or listen to it on vinyl on a decent system. You'll be fine. <laughs> Probably true. Touche. Okay, uh, let's move on to uh, the last couple of tracks. Next to last track is Atlantis. Well, it certainly starts off as a straight-ahead rocker, uh, but then comes down again, whether they were obviously trying to bring some atmosphere in around this city under the sea. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it did. I, it, good track for me. Not one of the strongest on the album, though. So we are so far apart, you and I. I've written down here, they've saved the second best to second last. <laughs> I love this song. I think this is really good. I think it should have been the opener, actually. I think it should have opened the album. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of that big concept rush stuff going on in it. I, I love the chorus and I, the bridge to it. I just think it's... I think it's almost you know it's a it's a bloody good track really really good track Steve? not for me um I, I like the riff i think if they'd have plugged away at that and kept it more as a rocker um i'd have enjoyed it a lot more i'm getting a lot of asia in here but i don't know how i've done throughout a fair bit of the album yeah it's it, it's fine it, it would never be an album opener for me and it's it's kind of okay the album finishes with i i presumed this would be the one Steve would like the most, let's see, because uh, it's certainly the heaviest and fastest on the album, and uh, it's called Relay. So, again, after some quite a complex start with bass and drums, it then really kicks into a proper hard rock riff, doesn't it? I was just 
reached the point where I was writing these notes and I'd done nine tracks and I thought, fuck me, and I'd written, right, I'm desperately striving for something different to say. But then this came on. It's, it's in my wheelhouse. Yeah, of course it is. I love the bridge into the guitar solo, which is, you know, decent enough. It's a decent enough solo against a backbeat that sounds like it's been turned up several notches, but still not high enough in my liking. But yeah, I, I like it a lot. I, I've written down, where was this when they needed it? <laughs> why Why do you leave it? So the last track on the album, this is just awesome. Uh, and for me, this this track, I get to this point, I think, well, actually, you've just, you've almost relegated everything that came before to being, in, in, not insipid, but it's, this, this, I think this just dwarfs everything that's gone before. Fascinating. I love Relate. But... <laughs> This is a song that brings them closest, close to a lot of other hard rock bands. And it's why I like the rest of this album more. <laughs> um, from what I've read, why, so why didn't this album make it? There, there were apparently, I've read of various legal disagreements. Uh, I don't know what that means, but it sounds like there was, I, I'm between the lines, you know, there were struggles in terms of its its release, its promotion, uh, whether, you know, whether that in terms of airplay or anything else or, or, or what, I, I don't know. But I think it's the fact that they were really doing something different. And, 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 and I, don't, I truly feel it's not trying to do something different. It's just the way that they really did put these songs together. And it's a perfect example of the whole being more than the, the sum of the parts. Well, highs and lows from you. I'm fascinated. So relays your high. What, what about your your low point, James? Well, just I'll just add to, to what I say. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not you know Mark and I are given the impression that we're kind of musical philistines here. I mean, you've listened to this an awful lot longer than we have, and you have because of your background in music, because of the stuff you like, and you, it was obvious. It was obvious to me as soon as I clapped eyes, clapped ears on this that you would love it, and I knew yeah. that. Yeah. And we are different, you know, inevitably. You know, I don't get rushed in quite the same way that you get rushed. Um, and therefore, I, what's interesting, and you'll have to tell me this, is did you fall in love with this straight away? Because I think I think this would grow on me. I'm absolutely convinced it would grow on me. Yes, I did. It hooked me. But I think that was probably, if you think, I mean, certainly for, you know, with in the, the early 80s, um, I, I was I was increasingly becoming gripped by, you know, I mean, the, you know, moving pictures is 1981. And that's, that's what, whilst I liked Rush before then, that, that, that's what hooked me. I, I loved the, what they were trying to do on this album. Uh, but it, and it's, and it's never, it's never dimmed. And it, it has, it, it's, it's one I never tire listening to. Hmm. I, I think, I think that's the key, isn't it? Uh, and I completely get that, you know, never tiring of it. This would have been quite a sophisticated album in 1982. That's the reality. You know, there wasn't a lot of clever stuff, uh, ambish, musically ambitious stuff going on, you know, aside from, you know, other people doing kind of proggy stuff. You know, I mean, we're talking, what, 1982 was Blackout. Um, it was uh, For Those Bounce of Rock. It, you know, they're, 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 this would have been quite highbrow as a listen, I think. Um, so I think it would have stood out. It would have it would have stood out above 
other stuff that we were all listening to. I never came across Grand Prix. I think if I come across this in 1982, I would have been struck by it as well because it's it is sophisticated. It's quite polished, and it's yeah, and it's got a yeah, it had a very sort of um, bright sound to it. So I completely get that. I do completely get that. I, I can see exactly why you love it, and I think Steve's right. It's grown on me over the week a lot. In answer to your question, Rich, um, Relay for me and Atlantis, not for me. Okay. Mark? Um, Relay for me. Um, and oddly enough, given that it is a bit of a rocker, um, take a chance, not for me. Okay. Um, and for me, um, as I said, Tough of the Track is just one of my favourite tracks of all time. So um, not surprising that's at the top. And probably, probably heaven. To hell! I mean, heaven to hell, and uh, and and um, Atlantis and my uh, those that have scored not quite as highly as the others. I, I understand around it needing time. This is not this is not something you have on the in, on in the background. This is something you need to just properly sit down and and listen to. But yeah, uh, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. It's a, it's a good way to kick off uh, this episode and. Um, well, let's continue and moving on to Fastway then, uh, Steve's choice, and uh, waiting for the raw, Steve. Opening album sleeve notes. Mm, yeah, okay. So this is, um, yeah, as I say, Fastway, another British band, their third album. I had a lot of fun, an awful lot of fun revisiting this. Although I say that, I play it a lot. I do play it an awful lot. It was Mark who played it to me first many, many years ago, and I just fell in love with the... Um, with the opening track, uh, "The World Waits for You," um, and that's still my one of my all-time favourite tracks of all time. But I've been asking myself all week: Did I see things? And now that we've just had this conversation with you, Rich, I've been asking myself all week: You know, have I seen things in this that the others might will not have seen, and will they not appreciate Fastway in quite the same way that I appreciate Fastway? And have I completely misunderstood it? And were they shit? And I was a standalone voice in the wind, but. Um, yeah, so as I say, my starting point was 86 or 87 when I first heard it. Loved it, um, especially, as I say, that that big, that really big opening number, The World Waits For You, um, which was a 10 out of 10 track, always will be. And I still believe this band should have made it. I absolutely do on the basis of what this album offered. I was surprised about the band's view of it. They preferred their first two albums, didn't like this particularly, and I was surprised about Fastways fans if there are many, um, their view of it, because I think this is, of its time, very respectable synth rock AOR gold, which just needed refining next time out, and it should have been the launch pad for the stars, and yet it absolutely wasn't, which was which was a real shame. Um, let's just have a quick talk through the, um, the nuts and bolts. Uh, as I say, February 86, recorded late 85, Columbia Records, it's about 48 minutes long. The producer was the um, estimable Terry Manning, friend of James Page, ZZ Top, Lenny Kravitz, God knows who else. A big deal. Um, and he got to do it at Abbey Road Studios. Um, the band, another supreme vocalist, Dave King, lead guitars, Fast Eddie Clark. That's the fast bit of Fast Way. We'll come to the way bit in a minute. Shane Carroll on rhythm guitars, Paul Reed on bass, Alan Connor on drums, Terry Manning on synths. I chart? No idea. I don't think it did. Sales? God knows. Um, fuck all, basically. So, yeah, formed formed by ex-Motorhead guitarist, Fast Eddie Clark, um, and also ex-UFO bass player Pete Way. 
who left the band um, almost immediately because of a contract dispute of some sort. So finished up forming his own band called Wasted. He obviously had a thing about putting his surname into bands' names. This is their third album. King brought a load of his mates over from Ireland to perform on this. Um, and the big key cog in this wheel is Terry Manning because he did all the synths and also arranged all the orchestral pieces and the, so much strings in here. It's, um, it is like soccer nights out of the album, all some of this stuff. And I think because of that, it's brilliant. And I really enjoy it. And I hope you boys have enjoyed it as much as I have. Did you enjoy it at the time? Do you remember it at the time? I don't know. I, I remember um, I remember the first album. So I was really surprised at how different this one was. Because the, the first one was obviously, no, not Motet, but it was still very, very guitar-driven rock, wasn't it? Whereas this is, you know, this this is uh, the, this is danger of uh, getting into Grand Prix territory at times, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, re- I really liked it. Uh, it uh, I, I'm, I'm surprised um, at, at Eddie's understated guitars throughout, but as an album on its merits, uh, really enjoy listening to it. As you say, I love the arrangements. I like the strings and and the multi-layered keyboards in it, and there's some really good tracks on it. Yeah, Mark. Well, three things. Um, one is when when you picked it, I thought, well, this is going to be interesting because I haven't really, other than uh, the title track and The World Waits For You, I haven't really listened to much of this album in a very long time. So so there was a bit of my brain that was going, I wonder how it stood the test of time. So we'll come on to that. Um, the, the second thing, as I listened through it, was for a man who was producing the album, I thought it was interesting that the keyboards often felt like a bit of an afterthought at times because they lift a lot of it, but they, they're they almost dumped in at the end. It almost is like they've gone, I'm not sure we've got enough keys on this. Terry, can you just come in and put some keys on? Because it feels like it needs it. So that was a bit odd. Third thing I've written on my notes here in my, I, I have a section above all of the kind of notes on the tracks which says overall, and I've got in big, fat, capital letters, Eddie Clark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, because the man is just a bloody genius, I think. Um, You know, we talk, you mentioned the understated uh, guitar work. I think that helps this album because he's not crawling all over it like it's a Motorhead record. He's there when he needs to be. He's doing, a lot of cases, he's doing the bare minimum that needs to be done just to keep the track going and keep it heading in the right direction, keeping it honest. And there's no histrionics. And I love that. I think I think this is a really, really good kind of example of what Eddie Clark could do as a as a guitarist. Um, the, the verdict is I think it stands the test of time really well in parts. We talk a lot on the podcast about consistency being the key to everything. And I think the thing that lets this album down in places is that when it's high, it's really high, but the lows are quite low. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair comment. And I think there are some lows on this, and I've forgotten actually quite how low some of the lows were. I've been looking at the vinyl because you asked me to check out the the track listing, which we were unsure about because it's different to how it is on Wikipedia. I just whipped it out and looked at it, and side one of this album on my vinyl, looks like a war zone, you know, scrapped to death, the thumbprints. Side two, you can see your face in it. You know, that's how, that's my view of this album. I played so much side one, so little side two. 
and, and revisiting some of those tracks was interesting because some of them don't quite stack up as I recall. But it's all overshadowed by the whole feel of the thing, and the whole feel of the thing is is just so warm and 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 joyous, and and I've enjoyed that element of it. You know, it's just been an absolute blast. So this is waiting for the raw ten tracks, five on each side, and side one kicks off with the world waits for you, which runs to a small matter of seven minutes and thirty five seconds, and you think seven minutes thirty five seconds has got to be a lot going on on this song, and no, there isn't. There's just a big, big song that just goes on and on and on, and I absolutely adore it. I dare say there's ne'er-do-wells and naysayers who think this is uh, this, this could add up to boring. Nah. Nah, 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 nah. This is one of my top 30 tracks ever of all time, of all time and ever. And it's a tenor a tenor, and it's a track I remember adoring the first time I played it. It's a gigantic, sprawling piece of orchestral rock that just flows along, punches where necessary, and I just think it's simply exquisite. The, the moment I heard this, the first bars, and I've listened to this many times, that this this track, many times over the years, and every time it's like I'm somebody's put me in a DeLorean and we've gone back to the future, and I'm back in 1986, and I'm listening to it for the first time and going... Holy fucking shit, this is good. Yeah. I love this track. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah, I like this too. Really like the atmospheric start. It's it doesn't sound like seven minutes. You know what I mean? It it doesn't it it doesn't at any point I'm not thinking, oh blooming hell, you're still going. There's some different breaks in it, there's some little bits and pieces in it, there's some light and shade. So I mean it, it's very cleverly arranged. I think, I mean, I love the introduction of the strings later on. The point I made earlier about Farsady Clark's guitars, I mean, understated, maybe with wrong word. In terms of what he's doing, his guitar work on this album, I think it's really good. I really wish it was higher up in the mix. But as a, as a starter track, very, ambi- very brave uh, track one. I mean, you know, they could have started with the title track. They could have started I think, with a couple of the other tracks on the album. So to start with a seven-minuter is ambitious, but a good way to start. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I don't think it's a tra- it's an album opener at all. It works just because of just because of the sort of the, the majesty of the of the song itself. About the last two or three minutes of this is a is pretty much a string-led outro, but there's so many layers and textures in that in that movement as it drifts away and simply singing the same vocal over and over again. But it just works. It just somehow works. It's um, it's really, it's almost hypnotic. They did, there's only one single off the album, and this was it. So they did try and box it up into four minutes. Did it chart? I don't know. I doubt it. What it said to me that um, was that the appetite for this sort of music was perhaps no longer there by, you know, 86 perhaps. I don't know where you you had to be a, a glam or thrash band, or if you were an AOR band, and let's face it, this is kind of quite close to AOR. If you were an AOR band, you had to be um, a pretty much established act like, you know, Ario Speedwagon or Journey. Otherwise, you weren't. There was just no marketplace, I don't think, for a band doing this sort of stuff. That was, I think, their failing, and it was hardly, it was hardly self-inflicted. This was the way they wanted to do it. Maybe that's why they don't like the album, because they realised it, it created a missed opportunity. Possibly, but this is, I think this is also the first, you know, on track one, we get 
the backloaded keys as well. It's got that beautiful kind of, you know, motif running across the, across it all. And it just really works. I love the outro on this song. I think it's, it's, it's brilliant. It didn't chart in the UK at all. Yeah. No. Neither did the album. No, no, not surprised by any of that. So track two and um, Kill Me With Your Heart. And, you know, Richard referred to Fastway and uh, the debut album. And then, of course, they did All Fired Up. So by now, you're getting a fair idea that we ain't going down either of those routes with Waiting for the Roar. We're into synth heaven and um, and, the, and, the, and the orchestral arrangements and the synths and the keyboards. They're, again, they're overlaid on this song as well. Anyone getting White Sister? Or, and jump right at the beginning. Wait for it. I'm getting Laura Branigan. <laughs> in yeah. a good way? In a, in, a, in a good way? Yeah, yeah. I do like the groove of this song, I must admit. It's a great sing-along chorus as well. It's interesting. Remember when we were talking about 7, 800 degrees Fahrenheit and we were bemoaning the fact that David Bryan was all over that thing? There's a kind of sense of that with this, isn't there? Yeah, I, 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 I really love it right up until the chorus. And, and it's a it's a solid eight plus, and then the chorus comes in, and I just think the chorus is lazy. Okay, so we've we've taken a slight dip down, and we're going to just carry on taking a slight dip down to um, track three. I'm I'm on that di- downward escalator, tired of your love, which is kind of it's got that eighties dance beat bassline running through it. Feels like a pop song, and again another nice tune, and yet another one of their hallmark long winded exits. And it's kind of okay, but some of their exits aren't as good as others. Sometimes they just need to get out the door a bit quick, a bit more quickly, don't they? <laughs> I really like this. I really like this track. I just, I think it's, you know, I don't mind the eighties poppiness of it. I think it's, it's of its time. Yeah. I, what can I say? It, this just sort of washed over me a little. It is, it is standard eighties chart fare, so not very mem- memorable. Not a pain to listen to. You know, good to have on the background when you're doing the ironing. <laughs> the words every rock band wants to hear, mate. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Ironing rock. Um, so that was Tired of Your Love, track three, which incidentally, Eddie Clark's guitar solo in it is 15 seconds long, and that's not great, is it? We need to hear more of the man, front and centre. Track four is, yeah, well, Richard mentioned it earlier, track four, side one. So this is Change, um, which is a nice enough ballad, which showcases Dave King's voice very well. I'm not a massive fan of the kind of OMD synths in the first couple of verses, but it's a track that picks up. The word I've written down here for this this track is pleasant. (laughs) Yeah, it's melodic, it's slow. I like the strings in it. It's very you know, pleasantly enjoyable to listen to. While you're doing the ironing. <laughs> that, that's good, because the, the words that I've written down here are, I don't like this at all. So I, I think this is just a nothing track. And like I say, when, when the, the highs on this album are really, really high, the lows are really low. And this, for me, I mean, this, it will come as no surprise at the end of this discussion to find that change is not going to score very well at all. In fact, there are about nine tracks that score better than this one. This clears the six-minute barrier, and it should have stopped at about four, where, where the dramatic outro of tracks one, two, three, seven, eight, or whatever are fine. Not with this. This just needs to get out of town. 
But I look, agree. If, you could, if you've got the patience to stick with it, you're rewarded with the final track on side one, which is an absolute gem. We always talk about cover versions on this podcast because we've got very high expectations of what we expect from a cover version. Originality is what we expect most of a cover version. And what we've got here is a Janis Joplin version that has so much originality. It's absolutely spot on. If you want a cover version, you want something that her version was full of jazz and blues and, of course, blessed with her incredible voice. I think it was 1971. Plenty of old school piano. Great song. And uh, I had fun listening to it just to reference it against this. But this, this is just fantastic. I mean, the piano is replaced by synths, obviously, on a fucking gargantuan scale. King's voice does not sound any better on this album than he does in this song. And I think he's just a brilliant vocalist. And they've just, they've managed to turn a really good jazz blues song into just a, a powerful, thumping, chugging corker. I, I absolutely love it. Track of the album for me. It's it's the song that Janis Joplin wished she'd recorded. <laughs> if she'd been alive, wished she'd recorded it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't know this was a cover. Yes, it's a cracker. I think that there, there, I predict there will be a theme for covers uh, in terms of just take it off in a completely diff- different direction. You know, the, the, our criticism of the covers, uh, the, most of the covers that we've heard on the albums we've reviewed thus far, are they are inferior versions of the song done in a very similar way. This is, yeah, taken a, a song, hasn't it, and just put bells on it one criticism i think again uh you can just about hear eddie's guitar it would have been even better if i'm not talking about dominating just been there a little bit more uh but that's my only criticism of this i couldn't i couldn't agree more it's an observation you've made and you'll keep making because that's that's the absolute common denominator with this album that that guitar is not is not high enough in the mix. No, we're near. And as Rich says, given it's his fucking band and the bloke he co-owned it with has left three years ago, then, um, you know, he's got every right to expect more. This was their first album with Terry Manning. The previous two have been done with Eddie Kramer. I know Manning's got a massive reputation, but there were things that weren't quite right. Like he liked his own piano too much. <laughs> but great outro on this. Oh. Fabulous outro. Yeah, this has added this has added two minutes to the original and, and it, it's worth every second of it. So you leave side one with a, a vocal masterclass from King, and unfortunately, you kick off side two with something slightly less endearing, engaging. I don't know. This is little by little, which I think is quite an inauspicious start, I must admit. It's a kind of moody rocker, which is okay. King strains way too much in this because um, he's got such a brilliant voice. Just gets it kind of slightly wrong here. That's really interesting. For me, this is like a caged animal prowling around and then suddenly it just bares its teeth and and this is the one track on this album where eddie's guitar sounds like it did in motorhead <laughs> and i'm with mark i i yeah. like the just the simplicity at the start but the groove on this is superb there's more going on amongst my highest scores this track really like it Track two, side two, rock on. More kind of straight ahead rock. Did you say rock on or ramble on? <laughs> Here's where you are. Here's your Zeppelin moment, isn't it? You sound just like Robert Plant and it all sounds, not now. Unfortunately, it all goes to shit after the beginning. 
but um, but right at the beginning, it's very Percy and very very Zeppelin, very ramble on. I like this because the synths have been turned down quite a lot. I think this is quite a good bouncy sing along, if I'm honest. Yeah, I think uh, certainly with um, little by little and then rock on. I mean, it, it's a much rockier start to side two. I prefer the first track side two to this one. This is much more sort of straightforward. A little by little had a bit more going for it in terms of complexity, much in the style of Grand Prix, perhaps. <laughs> I've written down here, fails to deliver on its initial promise. Okay. We moved to the title track, Waiting for the Raw, which for the life of me, I always thought I opened the album. I don't know where the fuck I got that from. I think probably because it fucking should have done. <laughs> yeah. but I don't know what planet I was on in the 80s. Not this one. I don't know what planet the band were on, putting this in the middle of side two. What the yeah. fuck? This is this is a beast. It, it's, it's big and it's loud. There's a humping great drum line going on. It's a, there's a cool riff. There's a great chorus. There's a keyboard guitar duet at the end, which is a little bit meh. But but boy, it's good. And it crunches on out as well. It's, um, oh, it's a good song. Yeah, this out. This is really is an album of two halves, isn't it? With the the um, the second half, the second side being much much rockier. He he found the volume knob on his guitar, or, or someone knocked the fader to the right position. Yeah, I, I've got here good title track. Why not the opener? Well, it just it builds as it builds and builds and builds, and then it breaks loose and starts rampaging around like a an angry elephant. It's a perfect album album opener, and I just don't understand what it's doing. Yeah. Echo all of that. Penultimate track, track nine, is a suitable track nine. I don't think anyone was to complain about that. This is Girl, which is brilliant. Um, the synths are back <laughs> and revved up. Yeah, this is it, – it's, it's, I quite I, I like this again. I think it's cool. I think after the last three, it's a bit more – we're a bit more back to side one. But it's very infectious in a good way, not in a measles way. I think the keyboards are very clever in this. I think Manning gets the keyboards right. In this, it's got some really nice dances all above and around it. It's just, I think, I think it's a great song. Really, really like this. Yeah, yeah, it's a good song. A bit more, Mr. Clark would be nice. Again, the, the phrase I've, I've put on my notes is foot tapper rather than head banger. Yeah, definitely. But they try to sign off with a head banger in, in Backdoor Man, which, if you can get beyond the cheesy intro, <laughs> which I think is shite, but with, then we're into an absolute banger of a riff. Well, it's let down by the chorus, and that intro is a hint of the chorus, and it's let down by that badly. But uh, I just love it's like crew meets ACDC. It's just phenomenal. Well, I've, I've, I've got written down here on my left-hand side, well, the first thing I've got written down is, what is the preoccupation with anal sex and heavy metal band? Yeah. yeah what the? Anyway. But then I've got, the problem with this is that it has a fabulous ACDC riff that runs right through it. And then, a bit like Rock On, we get an unforgivably lazy chorus. Yes, yes, it's true. But I could listen to this riff all fucking night. Yep. Yeah, I, I did put on my notes. So what's this song about? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it, it really charges a lot. Really, It's got a really good, solid finish, which is what you want when you finish an album. Yeah, so there you go. Waiting for the raw boys, highs and lows, please. So for me, I'll go for, I'm tired of your love. I'd probably score 
ever so slightly lower than change at the bottom end. Um, and at the top end, I think I'll have to give it to the World Weights for You, which narrowly beats little by little, which I really enjoy. Okay. Mark? Yeah, so my low is um, is change, as I said. Uh, I can't I can't get a piece of paper, really, between waiting for the raw and move over. I think if I had to choose one, it'd be move over, but they're, they're neck and neck for me. Yeah, no, no. Well, I can get a magazine between World Weights for You and anything, so um, that's my standout by a billion miles. Um, and I and I love move over, which I've given nine. So that's kind of an indication of what I think of the opener. Um, and the weakness, yeah, as we said earlier, and as was pretty obvious, change is the one I've got no real time for. But the album per se, as a whole, I still love it. How many years? Ninety six, oh six, sixteen, thirty five, give or take years later. Yeah, I just think it's a, yeah, I just think it's a brilliant piece of work, and yet another yet another commercial musical crime that this band didn't go on to greater and better things but hey ho we have time for one more album and this was one that i would have chosen almost certainly had i not known that it hadn't actually sold that well at all because it's a it's an old favorite of mine vain and their well i say their debut album mark will uh, clarify that but um yeah talk us through no respect my friend opening album sleeve notes well boys i i need i need your help to get some perspective because I've just lost myself completely in this album. I've lost all sense of perspective. Uh, it's always been a favourite. Ever since I heard Beat the Bullet on the Friday Rock Show back in, must have been June, May or June, 89. It's an album that I listened to several times every year, 30 years later. Um, and I, I, was, I was going through scoring it and I was going, this is ridiculous. I can't, I can't score it like this is just stupid but yeah i cannot my my love for this album cannot be overstated in any way shape or form i absolutely adore it so um let's kind of lift the bonnet and have a look at the engine um as it were um so yeah this is vain no respect is it their debut album i guess it is in the sense that it's the first album that was released as on a you know a proper record label it was their first record deal and um, they had released an album earlier it was released on their own label it was only available on cassette you can't get it that i've been able to find you can't find it anywhere so let's just let's just dispense with the argument and say this is vane's debut album released on june the 15th 1989 recorded earlier in that year on island records it runs to 49 minutes and 14 seconds, produced by a gentleman called Paul Northfield, who, um, on digging around, I discovered um, his production credits also include, among many, many others, Suicidal Tendencies, DAD, Rush, he produced Vapor Trails, Mortal Kombat and Dream Theatre. So um, he's a man with some studio chops. There's no doubt about that. It was recorded at Banquet Sound Studios in Sebastopol in California and also at Le Studio in Quebec in Canada, which uh, Richard will know well because it was a favoured studio for Rush back in the day. Vane at this point were a six-piece band, Davey Vane on lead and backing vocals, the band obviously named after himself. And then we had Jamie Scott 
um, later to become Delana Scott uh, after a sex change, but Jamie Scott on lead and rhythm guitars and backing vocals, Danny West, the fabled Mr. West in uh, Ready at the end of the album, on, also on lead and rhythm guitars and backing vocals, Ashley Mitchell on bass and backing vocals, Tom Rickard on drums and percussion, and Eric Lemayne on keyboards. It's, um, it's a 12-track album. In terms of how it did, critically, this was massively acclaimed at the time. It, lots and lots and lots of people in and around the business were talking about Vane. Um, they were you know, touted as the new Motley Crue, this kind of sleaze glam metal, but oh my God, they were so much more than just another glam metal band. Uh, it didn't chart in the United Kingdom, but the uh, Beat the Bullet, the single, did, uh, scraped, grazed the charts at number 93. Um, and in their home country, this album got to 154. So didn't reach gold in any territory. So its sales were relatively poor. As I say, 12 tracks, um, arguably at least one track too long, I would say, but we'll get to that. Uh, six and six. Track one, uh, sorry, side one, Secrets, Beat the Bullet, Who's Watching You, A Thousand Degrees, Aces and Smoke and Shadows, and then flip the record over and you get No Respect, Laws Against Love, Down for the Third Time, Icy, Without You and Ready. Uh, they toured this album in the UK and support for Skid Row in 1990, the same year that Skid Row went and got themselves banned from North London by Brent Council by swearing all over the Guns N' Roses gig. How did you boys enjoy it? I remember you gushing about this in our very early days of exchanging our musical journeys, Mark, um, in the in the mid-90s. So I enjoyed going back to this. This is a very good album. Is it absolutely super-duper great? Well, no, obviously Grom yes. is this one, isn't Yeah, I completely understand why either of you would have chosen this that area that they're playing in between sort of Guns N' Roses and Roses and Motley Crue, we yeah, we covered what Britney Fox and um, Faster Pussycat a, few, a number of episodes ago. You know, this is this is streets ahead of, of that that other sort of glam hard hard rock that, that you know that, that came out of, of America. I mean, so Paul Northfield, yes, I mean his production credits are big. I mean his engineer credits. I mean, so he was an engineer on Rush's Moving Pictures and Signals. Um, he was an engineer on Queensryche's Mind Crime and Empire. So this guy knows his stuff. Um, and uh, the production on this album is, is, is fantastic. Certainly he captured their energy and their attitude, which this album has got a ton of. Steve, you already alluded to your kind of enjoyment of it. Anything to add? This is my this is my wheelhouse. I absolutely love this sort of music, and this is as, as fine a exponent of this sort of craft as as you will ever get. I mean, the, the, their crime, for want of a better word, is that they were caught up. It's almost an alignment of the planets, just wrong place, wrong time, wrong everything. There's no reason why. If this comes out two or three years earlier, this band is massive. I think. I mean, I, I genuinely do. You know, they sounded good. They looked good. Uh, there was, you know, in this sort of late eighties sort of blizzard of, of hairspray and heels and, and and cool and sass and swagger. They just cut it, absolutely cut it. They looked the absolute part, far better in my opinion than, and I love Faster Pussycat, 
but as Richard said, better than Britney Fox, better than LA Guns, another band like that, better than you know, White Line, all the, better than Poison by this stage, far better than Poison by this stage. Bane had it. They had it in bucket loads. But it was, as I say, it was just a few. It was just a few years too late. Glam rock was almost Jurassic by the time this came out. The ship had sailed. Davy Vane always talks about this record when when I've seen some interviews, read some interviews over the last week, with enormous affection. And it obviously was seen at the time as a great album. It's still seen by me now, by you, certainly by many people, as a great album. And it's um, yeah, a real crying shame. I know they're still touring. He's still doing bits and pieces, but he'll live and die by this piece of work. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is widely regarded as the best hard rock heavy metal album of 1989, and I think that speaks volumes. Um, we don't, we, we can't quite work out why Fastway didn't make it. We can't quite work out why Grand Prix didn't make it. Both bands should have done. There are six letters why this band didn't make it. G-R-U-N-G-E. And that's what killed them. It's you know they were as you absolutely you absolutely right, Steve. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong style, wrong music. Um, and you know, I'd love to have seen these guys head to head with Motley Crue in 1984 because I think that would have been mm-hmm. that would have been an interesting fight. Just to respond to your grunge comment, the other interesting angle on this album, again, where some of the attitude comes from, I think that there are almost there are elements of punk on here. There are elements of indie, you know. There are so there are those same. It's almost the same ingredients that that made grunge, perhaps in different proportions. This was still different from your your, your traditional eighties glam rock. Um, there were other bits in this album, even with grunge. Uh, this was this was sufficiently different. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The problem was that the look that Vane chose, mm. they got written off as just another glam rock band, yeah. you know, and, and Ireland didn't promote them. You know, arguably, did they promote them the right way? Well, the evidence would suggest no. But they were killed off by the fact that the world had moved on. The world had moved on. You know, Vane came to the party mm. too late. They came to the party with five kind of party sevens they were ready to play but you know nobody nobody wanted them there that that's that's the reality of it and they you know a bit like i mean their peers who were their peers dangerous toys cats in boots you know um those guys that they were they all fell by the wayside all really good bands all never made it and they made them made it because they were they were bands out of time Uh, and it's a tragedy and a shame but it is what it is Okay, so side one kicks off with secrets, which, if this isn't a statement of intent, I don't know what is. This is uh, Davy Vane at his most kind of defiant, outraged, blistering start to the album, um, with West and Scott's guitars kind of right up the front. And as I say, it really sets the tone for the album. Um, it's a relentlessly catchy song, and you're kind of well. If I take myself back to you know June '89 when I bought this, um, I was hooked. This point onwards, I was sold. There was absolutely no going back for me. It didn't matter what they did after this; I was going to love it, and I did. I've never loved this track as much as you have. Funnily enough, this is this is not one of the big numbers on this album, as far as I'm concerned. Side one to me is like a flight of steps. And it and it just goes up and up and up. 
aces at the top instantly that's track five that's my absolute high point that's where that's where the flight of steps tops off and this is this to me is the introduction it's a brilliant it's a brilliant brilliant song tells you everything you want to know about davy vane and vane which is davy vane um because it's mean it's sleazy that nice punky lick and all embroidered by this very very distinctive voice and i've listened to so many glam bands and singers and songwriters and, and uh, vocalists and it's almost a little bit flat it's almost a little bit inhibited there's a coyness about it which i know he plays on and um, to make him seem slightly more sexy and and steamy rather than you know just grunty and thrashy um and it's also on point i mean i just think it's a brilliant vocal i just think it's as good a singer as this genre has at this point steve rich is getting deja vu of rat <laughs> um let's just bring some uh, balance to this uh, uh, this conversation right so it really is what we say about his voice yeah incredibly unique um for me maybe put a bit of smooth smoothness in there but um here's my point right this voice is robert smith of the cure meets billy joe armstrong from green day as you say that understated that almost quiet you know bit shy boy but then you know with mixed with punk and with attitude and this is a song you do not headbang to. This is a song you pogo to. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's got, you know, it's got bits of Hanoi rocks in it. it, it it's it's glammy. It's punky. It's got real attitude to it. This should have been really well placed at, at this point in time. Um, and uh, anyway, yeah, great opener. So if you'd like to just step into my shoes and take yourself back to a Friday night, probably around about half past 10, Radio 1, Tommy Vance plays Beat the Bullet. And it's one of those moments. It, I mean, it's probably more important than where were you when JFK was shot? Because I know exactly what I was doing when this song came on. I was clearing up my parents' kitchen um, after a, a night before I went to bed and I had the Friday Rock show on. And this came on and I just stopped everything. This is sleazy, it's defiant, it's, it's, it's got this gorgeous kind of hook line dripping through it. And again, it's a really bouncy tune. Um, is it perfect? Nope, it's not, but it's bloody good fun. Mm-hmm. It's not far off. It's not far off. It's not far off. There's so many little bits as I've studied the minutiae of this album. I love it. There's a bit in this song. There's a bit. There's a bit in all these songs. There's a bit in this song. There's a bridge from the guitar solo into a big vein vocal, back into the um, main riff towards the end. It fucking crunches. It's just to die for. It's a brilliant, brilliant song. Yeah, it is. It's good second track. Uh, yeah, this is much more straight ahead glam, but this, this for me illustrates. You know, this is streets ahead of, say, a, I don't know, a faster pussycat. The vocals, I feel, are a bit high in the mix on this one, and it could be better balanced because um, there's, there's some really interesting stuff going on with the guitars and stuff behind. Um, but, I mean, I guess, you know, Davey Vane would have had uh, an influence on that. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, good, good second track. We go from the sort of slightly frenetic bounciness of Beat the Bullet into track three, and we get more frenetic bounciness after a slowish start. And it's just surprising and um, and lovely. And you're back in. And this is, again, there's a lot of punk in this. 
maybe I'm just being slightly a slight sentimental old fool, but for me, I think what Davy Vane achieves across a lot of this album is there's a certain sense of vulnerability about the vocal as well that you feel like he's laying bare everything, and he does on this on Who's Watching You, and it's just I just I just think it's brilliant. Just think it's brilliant. It's what it's what he does. It's it's that um, he always made the point that he wanted to be more sort of slower and sexier than trashy and hard like all those other glam bands. There's almost something of the gentleman about him in that respect, isn't there? I, I kind of get the impression that if if he and Tie Me Down were shagging some bird behind the bike shed, he'd have laid his coat down first. <laughs> he'd buy her chips afterwards, something like that. He was. Um, that's what I think of Baby Vane. <laughs> There's a little bit of class about him. Relatively <laughs> <laughs> speaking. <laughs> That's genius. Richard? So, again, I'm getting I'm getting more indie in this track. So this is, I'm getting Cure, I'm getting Joy Division, I'm getting New Order. That guitar is, is, is a real sort of indie kind of style. Yes, it's still definitely this, the same band, but these first three tracks are laying out quite a canvas. Just when you think that they can only they only do one speed and one direction, they do a left turn into a thousand degrees, which is I've written three words down here: slow, menacing, beautiful. And I just this is just dripping with kind of stuff, emotion. The, the guitars just sit underneath this all the way through. And, you know, his, David Vane's vocal is way up in the mix. And these and these guitars just ride beneath it, uh, ebbing and flowing, you know, uh, rising and falling. I just, I think this is just an amazingly constructed song. I adore this. This is, I mean, I'm, st- I'm on step four now, so I'm still on, I'm still going up. As you say, everything's been kind of rhythm and punky and, those hard back beats and but this is just this just kind of smoulders doesn't it it's um it's the vocals are reined in and uh, and as you say there's so much emotion going on there you know but but without compromising on volume or or attitude yeah i like this it's uh, i think it's step up again after the last couple of tracks for me i love the paired back verse and then and then the build into the chorus this was a not that I didn't like it when I first heard it, but this has been a real grower for me. Every time I put it on, I've got into it more. If you ever wondered what Davy Vane's secret source is, what the X factor of Davy Vane is, it's that he's got the Hearts Diamonds, Club Spades, and your ass. Yeah. <laughs> and who could want more? <laughs> this is Aces, which for a very long time was also my favourite track on the album. It's not quite now, but it's, again, <laughs> I don't know, just, this, this album just transcends my ability to think and speak half the time. It's just amazing, really. Yeah, no, well, I'm, I'm not going to say much because, um, yeah, I mean, this, this, that kind of staccato riff and vein, the, the way he sings against it rather than with it, I, I don't know, there's something about the whole kind of arrangement of this song that's just brilliant. And it also contains the most perfectly scanned lyrical sequence you will ever hear when he comes to say, I'm wearing leather, head to toe, got me a mission. 
just fans, people, just listen to that and you will think that is poetry against music. That is just so perfectly written. It's a perfectly executed lyric. And nobody can sing I'm a bad motherfucker tonight and mean it the way he does. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. Richard, come on, bring some bring some some grounding to this. <laughs> Love it. I, I I think that's impossible. <laughs> yes, this is a good track. <laughs> I'm kind of sad. Jesus Christ. No, this is good. This is good. It's it's uh, one of my favourite tracks on the album. I love the attitude. Um, You know, it's 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 nearly sort of Guns N' Roses territory in terms of sort of the 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 spit of it and the the swagger and basically it's saying I've got I've got the aces. I really don't care what you do. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a it's a very good song. Very very good song. Okay. I don't know about you, Steve, but I'm getting the impression that it's not going to score quite as highly in <laughs> the Hampton. It's going to be scoring in the New Forest in Hertfordshire, but uh, we'll see. I think that will be impossible. I think you two have gone to hexadecimal scoring for this album. <laughs> and, and even if I gush about something, you'll just sit there and say, oh, Jesus Christ, Richard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so side one closes uh, with... I suppose, would you call it a ballad? I don't know. Um, a lament. It's something slow and gritty and dirty and sleazy, and it's called Smoke and Shadows, and it's vulnerable, and it's um, it rises and falls and lifts and dances and flutters and does all sorts of other stuff that makes you feel very, very, very happy. No, it's, a nice, it's kind of um, sleazy, isn't it? It's a nice, lazy, sleazy side patch. I also think um, Vane's... He's actually his sexy best in this song. You know, I almost fancy him listening to him sing this. And, um, it's, it's, it's a really nice, it's a lovely way to cap off side one. <laughs> Good song. Good song. But there's one of two tracks on this album where I'm sitting there thinking, I don't, wouldn't think I'd want to be his girlfriend. Um, I mean, it's <laughs> moody to the point of being in unhinged and disturbing. So it's, I mean, it's, and it's a good song from that point of view. In that it, it's, it, he's, this, this is a guy on the edge. You, I think uh, you're now showing um, uh, a complete lack of objectivity in these. Right? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with this song. There's nothing wrong with any of the songs on this album, in my humble opinion. But um, I, I have to say that when you turn the record over, you get the title track, and I've, I've just written two words in my notes next to this. One of them's in capitals, and it's fucking riff, riff. Honestly, this is a monster song. Yeah, it's um, it's a magnificently catchy number. It's, it's a very prophetic title as well, isn't it? Because they they got no respect these boys. Yeah. So, yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Now this is um. Yeah, well, it's the title track, and it's a great track. It's a great – could have opened the album. Good opening to the second side, isn't it? I mean, it lulls you into a false sense of security with that quiet start and then just explodes. And, yeah, I mean, riff is fantastic. So that's – yeah, so No Respect kicks off side two. And track two, side two, is uh, a little ditty called Laws Against Love. And, yeah, I mean, you're right. The, the, the melancholy doesn't let up at all, does it? But, again – 
relentlessly catchy song with a lot of punk influences on it in it and the one thing that i think is true yeah all of the kind of the the, the lack of objectivity aside and i realize that i am completely uh, i can i lack completely lack objectivity with this album so i i accept that but i think what i love most about this album is it's, it is relentlessly consistent uh the, the highs and the lows are not far apart at all yeah yeah another good song I mean, again you got the paired back verse and a chorus that's heading towards a bon jovi sing-along um so it yeah, a really good groove i've got a docking song pounding through my head in this chorus and i can't for the life of me finger it as it were and it's um there's a definitely a bit of don docking about this something on right. the attack i can't remember i need to play it but um i don't know so Laws Against Love, um, we reached the midpoint of side two with Down for the third time, which is a bit more of a straight-ahead, out-and-out rocker. I, I think it's probably one of the less inventive songs on the album. It's, it's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't excite me in the same way that the rest of the album does, though. Best guitar solo on, the, on, the, um, on this track, I think. Yeah, I don't disagree with anything you say. Yeah, me too. It's almost a bit of a repeat of the previous track with the interesting bits taken out. As we head into the final quarter of the album, we get to my 10 on the album, which is icy. And I just absolutely adore this song. I just think it is just as perfect a song as I have heard on anything. I love the lyric. Um, I love the concept of it. It's It's just the hook line just reels you in and just keeps you there for the whole thing. And the, and the guitars are astonishing on this. It's a very interesting story. It was the first track that, um, that they'd completed during the recording process a year or two earlier, apparently. And they went out to a club as a band. It sounds like an open mic night kind of club. Um, jumped on stage. Their producer, Paul Northfield, was there with them. They just jumped on stage and they played it because it was the only track they'd got laid down. And Northfield had just had a eureka moment and said, just bring the tape from that into the studio and I want you to play it like that. So this is as close to how they would do it live. They were just in the studio in the moment because it just felt absolutely spawned. And I sent, and I get that as well. I do get it. I, I mean, I'll give it eight out of 10. I sense that's going to be slightly, slightly overshadowed by your mark, but as in, I like it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's interesting. I felt with this track, vocally, was the point at which, you know when we say singers just go a little bit too far, particularly those that are always singing on that edge of attitude and and, and, and sometimes they just they overdo it. I felt, I personally feel he does that on this song. So I don't get, you know, it, it, it feels really genuine, his emotion and, and, and whatever that kind of emotion that is on, on those the earlier tracks of the album. On this, it feels a little contrived, and that spoiled it. Perfectly decent song, good song, but I, it's, uh, others on the album are a lot stronger for me. Well, whether they're stronger or not, the next one, which is the penultimate track on the album, which is called Without You, doesn't quite get a 10, but it doesn't, get too far away from a 10 um so it's it's another ballad lament call it what you want <laughs> it's davy vane stripped back it's the whole band stripped back 
at this point. Interestingly, I would have thought it would have ended the album. I think it would have been a perfect album end. If you could bottle pain lyrically, then this is the track because whether it's, I don't know whether he's talking from, whether he's singing from personal perspective or whether it's just a narrative he's made up in his head and committed to lyric, I don't know, but it sounds real enough to me. Um, it's just absolutely dripping with kind of um, despair, isn't it? Um, as you say, slightly unhinged maybe. No, that's really, really fascinating because I've obviously read an interview that you haven't because he said he plays a guitar on this, some of the guitar on this, and he said he was crying while he was playing it because it just got to him so much, the journey that they'd been on to get from where they were to where they are and everything about what had happened. And it, it, There's no great backstory, just you know the sacrifices and the work and everything that had gone into it. And, yeah, he just said he got absolutely choked up when he started playing this in the studio and he was in tears while he was playing it. So, And he, he apparently you can hear a little bit of it. I don't know in the vocals. I've not picked it. Mm. It just sounds completely wrung out mm. on it, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, and, and versus my comments on the previous song, this does sound unbelievably genuine. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's a, I put, I put not a bad ballad. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with Rich. It's, it's not a great ballad. It's, a, it's a perfectly good ballad. I don't think it's outstanding, but I, I love Vane's contribution to it. Whatever. <laughs> been a few of those tonight eh? <laughs> um, okay so the final track on the album is also sadly for me uh, the weakest point on the album uh, and it's called Ready that starts off with a rallying call to his guitarist and then um, just disappears into a fairly by numbers predictable uninspiring, somewhat insipid finish. Yeah, I agree. It's not up with the rest of the album. It's the closest they get to, can I say, traditional bands, you know, around more traditional glam bands like your Faster Pussycats and your whatever. They're, they're, they're beginning to sound all of, like all of the rest on this track, whereas on the rest of the album, they didn't. This, this song would not be out of place on Faster Pussycats' album. Well, it might be. <laughs> <laughs> even it, the point about this album is that even when even when they rock as they did through most of it um they've been so cool and so sexy with it that when they hit the accelerator you just that those two things just evaporate completely and it just it just becomes yeah trash glam by numbers this, this isn't the first time i've sat here looking at you boys and said fucking 12 track albums why do they insist on doing it because there's always a weak link found it here and we've hit yeah no, I, I, that's why I said when I when I you know started talking about this album, I said arguably it's a track too long because I think this will stop its progress up whatever part of the Hall of Fame it it was aiming for. It won't get there because of this track. It will cost yeah. a place or two. There's no two ways about that. Yeah. So come on, then, boys. Highs and lows um, on the basis that obviously there aren't any lows. Um, Richard. Uh, my lows would be uh, the, the final track, uh, Ready. And uh, some super, super songs on this album uh, and quite a few up there together, but I'll probably give it to Aces. Steve? Aces, Aces high, Ready low. Yeah, 
Uh, well, ready is my low. Uh, aces used to be high for me, and it's still very high for me, but not as high as icy. So, uh, yeah, icy is my high. Um, so there we are. We've done three albums reviewed. We now have the, um, well, interesting, <laughs> interesting task of rating them. Three great albums. I'm sure they'll all do actually very well. But let's put some scores on those doors. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so we've done the scores. And uh, let's see how these three totally underrated albums rated according to us. So first Grand Prix, There for None to See from 1982. Uh, and the scores were as follows. Steve gave it a dead seven, uh, Mark a 7.48, and unsurprisingly, I gave it an 8.3, and that gave Grand Prix a total overall between the three of us, just a Nats whisker under 7.6. So, Steve, what about Fastway? Okay, so, yeah, this was Waiting for the Raw, Fastway's third album, and the scores were thus. Um, you gave it 7.3, I gave it 7.65, Mark, you gave it 7.87, for the grand total of 7.60667. Mark, Vane? So, Vane, it did all right, didn't it? Um, Steve, you gave it Shade on 7.6, Richie gave it Dead 7.5, and no surprise at all to find that I gushed all over it, spunked up all over it. 8.75 on the nose to give it an average score of 7.9 and all the fours. So anyway, but let's see from all of us where these three albums have ended up. And let's go over to the Hall of Fame. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. So here we are. Uh, and as Mark said at the top of this episode, we are now 96 albums down. Uh, and uh, not far at all away from our first 100. And how did these albums do? Well, they did pretty well because they are all in the top half of our Hall of Fame. Uh, so Grand Prix, there for none to see, came in at number 42. And one place above them, just ever so slightly above them by a, I mean, a tiny, tiny amount, uh, was Fastway's waiting for the raw. So there they are at 42 and 41. But Mark's choice in this episode, Vane's No Respect has done very respectfully uh, in entering our Hall of Fame at number 22, just above UFOs, Strangers in the Night, and below, just below Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil. I'm quite happy that Vane is where it is. Where it is. I think it's a really good album. I think it, you know, it's... We have given all three albums the respect that perhaps they didn't get when they were released. And, and in the end, that was the point, wasn't it? So there you go. That was episode 32 of uh, Enter Sad Men, Shot Down in Flames, um, a tribute to bands who didn't make it as big as they should have done. And in our humble opinion, that was a musical crime. Thanks again for your company. We look forward to you joining us again next time for episode 33 of Enter Sad Men. Cheers. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, 
Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.